chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, we have the Feast of Booths. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is at the feast in Jerusalem. And Jesus has become very well known. There's a lot of talk about Jesus, but the talk is secret. The talk is kind of hushed tones. No one wants to talk openly about Jesus because everybody knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, are coming after them. And so people are kind of scared, so they talk about Jesus, but they talk about him quietly. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But then they believe. Some in the crowd believe, and they do it openly. And this drives the Pharisees crazy. They say, that's enough. This is, our, this is the time we need to put him... We need to stop this. We need to put him out. We need to silence Jesus. So they issue an arrest warrant for Jesus. What happened was... Jesus was not in Jerusalem at the feast. He comes from Galilee. He goes to the feast. He comes in quietly, secretly. And then he goes up to the most public place in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple and he begins to teach. And he teaches openly like he always does. And he claims to be God like he always does. And some people start believing in him. They believed in him. It said, this is just by way of review. They believed in him because of his miracles. And what is occurring is he's teaching that he is equal with God. He's teaching his intimacy with God, so intimate that he is on par with God, that he is God himself. Remember, God is triune, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's God the Son who is Jesus. He was teaching about his divine origin, as we saw last time. And so some in the crowd are amazed. They believe, they believe in him because of his miracles And the religious leaders decide that they need to silence him. They issue an arrest warrant. They unite to issue an arrest warrant, which is a feat in and of itself. Because the religious leaders think of them as these opposing political parties or religious parties. And they are like this. The the Pharisees and the chief priests. The chief priests are mainly Sadducees. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are always infighting. But they are united because they both hate Jesus. And they hate him enough to bury the hatchet. Let's get this thing done. Let's get him finished. Let's silence him. Let's arrest him. And then we can get back to fighting among ourselves. This is kind of what's happening with the arrest warrant, which was issued last time that we were together. In verse 33, Jesus says this. For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is going to die in six months. But his death will not be his end. It will not be the end of Jesus. His death will, will be his return to glory. He will return to the Father where he came from. And this is... What we're seeing in this just kind of review of of where we were last time is through his language, he's saying that unbelieving Jews will continue to seek him. 
which is to say they'll continue to seek the promised Messiah. That was back then, and it is now. The unbelieving, unbelieving Israel continues to wait for one who is not coming. They continue to hope in one who is not coming. Another Messiah, as opposed to the Messiah who has already come and was killed, was resurrected, ascended and is seated at the majesty on high and is coming back. But Jesus is saying, you're going to seek me. And that's a reference to unbelieving Jews continuing to look for a Messiah who's never coming. After Jesus' death, he will return home to the Father in heaven. And so he tells the unbelieving audience that they cannot come. That they cannot come there. They are both unwelcome and unwanted in, in the location that Jesus is going to. The unbeliever is unwelcome and unwanted in the eternal abode of God. In the abode of Jesus, which is the abode of the Father. And Jesus uses very different words for the believer. You know the words in John chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. See, those are words that are directed to believers. And Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you because you are both welcome and wanted in the place that I am going. Versus the unbelieving audience, which is neither. Because the unbelieving audience cannot go to heaven. They're excluded from heaven. Versus believers who Jesus is referring to in John chapter 14 and us by extension if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that you are, you are welcome and you are wanted in the eternal abode of Jesus, which is the eternal abode of the Father Himself. In John chapter 7, the religious leaders don't understand Jesus' words. What do you mean we can't go where you're going? Look at verse 35 of John chapter 7. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? They can't fathom that he will go to a place that they have no access to. Don't you know who you're talking to, Jesus? Don't you know who we are? We're in charge. We're in control of Israel. Don't you know that? They can't Accept this idea that he would go someplace that they have no access to. And so they conclude he must be talking about someplace that is outside of Israel. Someplace that we have no control over. Keep reading in verse 35. He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. Is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. This is the same spiritual blindness that we've seen a number of times in the Gospel of John. The unbeliever thinks in terms of the material, physical realm that he can see and touch and feel. The unbeliever doesn't think in terms of the, the, the immaterial realm, the spiritual, the eternal realm. We're seeing the unfolding 
of the statement that is in the prologue of the Gospel of John that we've seen a number of times in him, in the Lagos, this is John 1, verses 4 and 5, in the Lagos was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees don't think of heaven as Jesus' destination. They can't think of heaven as Jesus' destination. They think of some other earthly, material place as his destination. They think of the dispersion. The dispersion here, the, the, the word dispersion is the Greek word diaspora, which is a very important word in the scripture. We could present a whole sermon on the word diaspora, but for the sake of time, I'll just touch on some high points with respect to that word. Diaspora has two possible meanings in the Bible. One, it's the condition of being scattered. The condition of being dispersed. Meaning number one. Meaning number two, it's the place where the scattered, the dispersed, are located. Those are the two ways that, that diaspora is used in the Bible. Now, today the word diaspora, at least in academic circles, is used in all kinds of different ways. Many of those ways are contrary to the scripture. So I'm not referring to, to any of that. I'm talking about how the Bible uses the term diaspora, which is translated here, dispersion. In the Bible, the word almost always means the Jews. Either the condition of the Jews having been scattered, or the place to which the Jews have been scattered. In Jesus' time, when Jesus is speaking these words, there, there have been two dispersions, two diasporas that have happened since Jesus is speaking these words. Dispersion number one was in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Back then, Israel was divided into a north and a south. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And so the Assyrians came in in 722 and destroyed the capital of the northern kingdom, sacked it and, and, and burned it, and, and took the, the Israelites of the northern kingdom cap captive. Took them back to Syria, took them to all kinds of different places. The, what the Assyrians would do when they would conquer an area is they would remove many of the, 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 the people of the ruling class, and then they'd bring foreign peoples in with foreign religions and they'd sow them into the land so that really the cultural identity is gone. That was the, 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 the practice of the Assyrians, 722 B.C. Then 586 B.C., the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was and sacked the city and took the leadership out of there. But remember, there was the 70-year exile and then they came back from Babylon and and return to Jerusalem. Those are the two dispersions, but even in, the, in the, the Babylonian dispersion, some of them stayed in Babylon and didn't come back. So the dispersions that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are talking about are the Jews that have been scattered throughout different areas. By, by, by this time, when this, this conversation is being had in John chapter 7, some of the Jews are in Greece, some of them are in Egypt, some of them are in Rome. And so the Pharisees are saying, he must be going there. He must be going to those places. In verse 35, the religious leaders are using dispersion to mean the place 
where the Israelites have been scattered abroad, they were located among the Greeks, is what this verse says. The Greeks, the, the word Greek is the, is the Greek word, Elan, or Elaine. And in this context, it doesn't mean the Greeks from the country of Greece. It means non-Jews. So that word can, be, can mean the specific Greeks that speak Greek from the country of Greece, or it can mean anybody other than the Jews. And that's the way Paul uses it in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, meaning there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, meaning he's using the word Greek to mean non-Jews. Here's what's going on. The religious leaders are thinking, Jesus knows we have not been very welcoming to him. We want to kill him. I mean, that's what's happened. They want to arrest him and kill him. They are reasoning. Jesus is aware we've not been very welcoming to him. And so, he must be thinking about going to some place where they're going to be welcoming. He must be thinking about going to some place where they will welcome his message. Do you see the irony? I mean, this is dripping with irony. This is, in fact, what happened Israel didn't want the message of Jesus. He came into his own and his own received him not. John tells us in the prologue. So Jesus takes his message elsewhere. Because the plan of God is unstoppable. Don't flatter yourself. You can't do anything to stop the plan of God. Even one iota. They couldn't stop the plan of God. God sends his Messiah to his people. God sends the Jew of Jews to the nation of the Jews, to Israel. By and large, they reject him. The religious leaders reject him. You don't get much more rejection when you kill someone, when you hate him enough to kill him. So what does God do? God raises up the... First, he raises him from the dead, and then he returns him among the land of the living. Right? Because Jesus fellowshipped for a matter of weeks with his disciples. And then Jesus takes the disciples and turns the 12 disciples, one of them is gone and another is appointed in his place, and turns them into apostles, which means sent one. They're not just followers, disciple. They become sent ones, apostles. And he sends them out and they go and they take the message exactly what the Pharisees are saying here. They just don't know what they're saying, the significance of what they're saying. This is exactly what happened. Jesus takes his message to those who want it. He takes his message, what did, what did he say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? To his apostles you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the world. So the apostles of Jesus, the message is not welcome in Jerusalem. They start persecuting the the Christians who are in Jerusalem, remember there's the first persecution where they pick up stones and they, they kill Stephen when he, issues, when he gives that great sermon in Acts 7. There's the persecution. And so the Christians there in, in Jerusalem, Christianity, by the way, was a Jewish faith, a Jewish faith made up exclusively of Jews initially. Then there's the persecution in Jerusalem and that brings them out into, into Judea. And then they go out into Samaria. And then they go out into the far reaches of the empire, of the Roman Empire, and beyond, even to uncivilized, unmapped, uncharted places like Texas, even. 
And this is still going on. The Pharisees didn't know what they were saying. But it's ironic what they were saying. Because they knew that they were not welcoming to Jesus. They didn't welcome his message. And so Jesus took his message to those who would want it. To us. Keep reading in verse 37. Verse 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is a very similar offer. It's a very similar offer to the offer that Jesus made to the Samaritan woman at the well in John four fourteen. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well, of, a well of water springing up to eternal life. The Samaritan woman, non-Jewish, responded by faith. Sadly, many of the Israelites in the crowd, not all of them, but many of them, will respond in unbelief. Now let me be clear about something. As I speak of Jewish unbelief, I want to be crystal clear about something. Christians over the centuries... At some point, somewhere, somewhere along the line, because the Jews rejected their Messiah, they thought, you know what, I think we should be anti-Semitic. Let me explain how that position is not only absurd and even stupid, but it is unbiblical. It's absurd because the leader of Christianity is a Jew. And Everything you know about God is because of the Jews. All the apostles, Jewish. Everything in the New Testament written by a Jew. Okay, so we worship a Jew. Of course, anti-Semitism is not appropriate. It's absurd. And it's evil because God has chosen the Jewish race to be the pipeline, the conduit through which He blesses all of humanity And if you're going to align yourself with the devil himself who seeks to attack, to cut off the pipeline of blessing from God to humanity, then I don't want to stand next to you. Anti-Semitism is not only absurd, but it is evil to be engaged in because God has chosen the Jewish race to be his conduit of blessing to humanity. So... Be careful. There's a reason why anti-Semitism is growing in our nation. Because we are rejecting God all the time. All the time. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, but that's a topic for another day. The setting of John chapter 4 is very different than the setting of John chapter 7. John chapter 4 is the Samaritan woman. Jesus is standing next to a water well having a conversation with this woman. John chapter 7 is a very different setting. He's in Jerusalem at the feast. The scene in Jerusalem is dramatic. Dramatic and powerful. And I want you to get just a slight picture of this. I want you to get some of the flavor of what's going on in Jerusalem There's a powerful water ritual that is involved in the Feast of Booths that ties to Jesus' teaching. The Feast of Booths was a festival that lasted seven days. 
when the people lived in tents to commemorate God's provision for them in the wilderness. Remember in the, in the Exodus generation when they left Egypt, they, let, they lived in tents for 40 years before Joshua brought them into the promised land. And so the Feast of Booths, they would build tents and live in them for seven days. And then on the eighth day, they'd break down the tent and they'd have a closing ceremony. John says that Jesus made this solemn pronouncement in verses 37 and 38. He says that he did it on the last day, the great day of the feast. Do you see that there in the text? Now, there's disagreement among theologians. Is John talking about day seven of the feast or day eight of the feast? I lean towards day seven because the actual feast was seven days. And then the eighth day was break down your tent and a closing ceremony. But I'm not going to get wrapped around the axle about that. You know, there, there, there's some things in the scripture that are clear. And there's some things that are not clear. And that's okay. We shouldn't major on the minors. Right? There's some things where we say, I think that's the way it is, but can't be 100% certain. Now, there are other things that we are 100% certain on, and we're willing to die on that hill. I'm willing to die on the hill that salvation is by grace through faith. I'm willing to die on that hill every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And I'm going to be dogmatic. Or if I could quote Dwight Pentecost, I'm not dogmatic, I'm bull dogmatic. I'm going to be dogmatic on that. I'm not going to be dogmatic whether this is the seventh day or the eighth day of the Feast of Pentecost. What matters are the details of the feast. What matters are what the details of the feast represented and how they tied to Jesus' words. Let me start with a timeline, just to refresh your memory. The timeline is, verse 10, Jesus comes into Jerusalem quietly. Remember, his half-brothers wanted him to come to the feast with a bunch of fanfare, a bunch of hoopla. Come on, Jesus, that, 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 that's, that's how you, you have a following. Everybody knows about your miracles. You need to have a big event. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what the half-brothers of Jesus said. And the reason I call them half-brothers is because, of course, Jesus was conceived of a virgin. His other siblings are conceived of union between Joseph and Mary, each one of them. But Jesus, uniquely like no other human being, was conceived of a virgin, and that's why I call them half-brothers. Jesus comes into Jerusalem secretly, quietly, in verse 10. Then sometime in the middle of the feast, I say that because verse verse 14 says, in the midst of the feast, somewhere in the middle of the feast, Jesus comes into the temple, And he begins to teach. He teaches from verse 14 through verse 36. And then on day 7, he stands up and makes a a solemn declaration. And he does this at the climax of the festival. For seven days, Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem has been packed. Packed with worshipers. Some of the worshipers are residents of the city. Some of them are pilgrims. Remember, there there are three festivals that that a Jewish man was required to go to Jerusalem for three times a year. The Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Booths, this feast that we're talking about here. And so each day the priest 
engaged in a water ritual. Each day of the Feast of Booths, he would engage in a water ritual where he would lead a procession of people from the temple to the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam is a very famous water source. It has a, a, a rich history. We're going to see it again in John chapter 9. This is a, a replica of that pool. We'll see it again in John chapter 9 where Jesus will use it as part of one of his miracles. So let me spend a little bit of time on it today in anticipation of where we'll be in, in a couple of chapters. The pool was part of a water project, a water infrastructure project, you might say, that King Hezekiah built in the late 700s B.C., 701-ish time period, 701 B.C. Second Kings 20, verse 20, refers to the project, to the, to the public works project. It says this, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Hezekiah built this water project to provide water, drinking water, for Jerusalem. No water, no life. Water is critical. I mean, we kind of take it for granted, right? We open up the spigot, there's water, good to go. It's always been there. And as long as the water comes out and it looks good, doesn't smell bad, doesn't taste bad, and, and I shouldn't forget, as long as our water bill's not too high, then next topic, we just move on to something else. We take it for granted, but water is life. Water is essential. And that's why many times in the scripture, water is used as an image, as a picture for eternal life. Hezekiah's project was not just about water. His public works project wasn't just about water. It was about national security because Jerusalem's water source, the Gihon Springs, was outside the city wall. That's a problem when your city is under siege. Right? The way they would take a city, the way the Assyrians took the city, the way the Babylonians took, the way the Assyrians took the city of Samaria in the north in 722 B.C., and the way the Babylonians took the city of Jerusalem in the south in 522 B.C., is they laid siege to the city. You would surround the city, and you would cut it off, and you would choke it slowly, consistently. You cut them off from water, you cut them off from food, and you just choke them and choke them and choke them till they're vulnerable and they're ready. And then either you get them to surrender if you can persuade them, or you have a battering ram, or you have a ramp, and you enter the city. So if you don't have water, if your water supply source is located out, outside the wall, because when the bad guys come, everybody comes inside the walls, you close the gates, and you hope and pray that you're going to make it. But if you look over the, over the wall and the water spring is over there and the bad guys are right next to it, you have a big old problem. And so this is the national security issue that King Hezekiah was trying to solve. The Assyrians were the threat at that time with King Hezekiah. They had, in fact, already come to Jerusalem. Now, God had destroyed 185,000 of them. But they're still a threat because Assyria is a superpower at that time. There were three parts to Hezekiah's water project. Number one, the water supply source, the Gihon Springs on the outside of the wall. Number two, the pipeline. And number three, the reservoir. So if you're going to build a water project, 
and your water's over there, and you're over here, you've got to get it from there to here. So they needed a pipeline. Now, it's not a PVC pipeline, right? It's a, it's a tunnel. So the second component was they're going to build a tunnel underneath the wall. Here's what the project looked like. Here are the three elements of the project. For its day, this was a huge public works project. The tunnel was the most difficult part because it's 1,800 feet underground through rock that you've got to go under the city. And so the elevation is different. The, the, the water's going to flow through the tunnel. You know, they, they, don't have, they don't have pumps or anything like that. It's just a gravity flow. It's going to flow from the, from the natural springs through the tunnel underneath the wall to the reservoir, to the holding place, to the pool of Siloam. And then that pool is inside the wall. So you don't have to worry about the Assyrians outside the wall. You just come to your water supply source at the pool and you take your water and you go back to your house and you drink it. We're not sure exactly because when you look at the tunnel here on the, on the screen, you see how it's kind of squiggly. You know, the shortest distance between two lines is, is a straight line. Between two spots is a straight line, right? I, I, I can't help but be fascinated by this because I, I was a water lawyer for... 20 plus years and, and you know they have big monster machines that they build tunnels with it's a big machine that, that is a little smaller than you know a little lower than, than this ceiling but it's huge and it's got teeth all over it and they fire that thing up and it rotates and then the, even the teeth rotate separately and it just cuts right through the earth and you can build huge tunnels that way and you run your pipe underneath it well, they don't have one of those. They got a bunch of pickaxes. And so probably what happened, probably the reason why this line is all squiggly is they're picking and, and they, they hit an obstruction and they're like, ooh, the, the rock is a little softer. It's kind of a weird combination of words, right? Soft rock, but the rock might be a little softer over here, so we're going to go over here and then we're going to go over there and we're going to go over there. All they need to do is get from the water supply source to the reservoir. And then gravity will do the rest. They just have to open it. And so it's okay that it's squiggly, just like a river can be squiggly. So they go through this tunnel. They, they, they have their picks, and they chip away at it. In the 1800s, archaeologists found an inscription inside the tunnel. The inscription is called the Siloam inscription. It's carved into, it was carved into the wall in the tunnel. Someone cut it out. Maybe it was a worker, maybe it was a supervisor who carved it into the wall. The way, the way they built it is kind of the way we built our transcontinental railroad, right? We started on two different, in two different spots, and they built the line, and they built the line, and they built the line, and they met in the middle in Utah. Same idea. One group started with their pickaxes inside the wall, where the pool would be, and the other group started with their pickaxes where the, the springs of of, of of um, Gihon were, were, um, were located. And so the, the Hebrew inscription reads like this, as translated in the Richard Myers images from a standard Bible dictionary. Laborers on each side, on each end, dug toward each other with picks. When three cubits separated them, that's about four and a half feet, they heard each other calling through a fissure running south to north. At the breakthrough moment, the picks of a laborer 
from each side collided, pick against pick. Then water flowed from spring to pool for 1,200 cubits, about 1,800 feet. The rock above the laborers' heads was 100 cubits thick, so that's about 150 feet thick. Here's a larger view of all of this, a larger view of the city of Jerusalem. What's happening is, during the Feast of Booths, the priest starts up there, you see at the, in the, kind of the higher part of the screen, at the temple. And then he gets a, a golden pitcher, and he walks down, leading a procession down to the pool of Siloam. And this is part of the ritual. He goes down to the pool of Siloam, he gets water, and he takes it back up to the temple. This happens each of the seven days, and during this time period, the priest makes his way back up to the temple. There's this ritual. He pours the water on the altar, and that's to commemorate what God did for the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember, God provided water for the Israelites in the wilderness, water out of the rock. He did it twice through Moses. And so during the event, the Levitical choir would sing. The Levitical choir would be singing what was called the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118. Hallel means praise. They'd also sing Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, is what Isaiah says there in that verse. And on the last day of the feast, the priest would march around the altar seven times. Seven times around the altar. Just like they did at the Battle of Jericho. Remember, God told them to do something that seemed ridiculous. Ridiculous. This isn't how you laid siege to a city, God. You told us in Joshua to walk around the city one time every day for six days, and then on the seventh day to walk around seven times and blow our trumpet, and then the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, the song says. Right? That's what they're commemorating. And then they took, they took Jericho. When the, when the priest walks around the altar seven times on the seventh day of the Feast of Booths, and then he pours the water there on the altar. They were commemorating those events from the time of Jericho, how God provided for them. And this water ritual was a joyous, joyous occasion, especially the last day of the festival. The Mishnah records this. Remember, the Mishnah is the written collection of the oral traditions that they wrote down, that the, that the rabbis wrote down. And the Mishnah says this, He who has not seen the joy of the house of the water drawing, meaning the place of the water drawing, has never seen rejoicing in his life. It was this beautiful occasion of singing and celebration all associated with this water ritual. And that ritual pointed to the messianic water prophecies of the Old Testament. Zechariah 13.1, for example, said, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for iniquity, meaning to cleanse sin and iniquity. Zechariah 14, 8, And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, toward the Dead Sea, and the other half toward the western sea, the Mediterranean Sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. So the scene here, this dramatic scene is, right after the priest finishes his seven-lap walk around the altar and he pours the water that he's collected in this golden pitcher from the Pool of Siloam, he pours it on the altar. Jesus takes the microphone. Jesus puts himself in 
the limelight. And he does this. He takes the scene in the way that his brothers wanted him to, in the way that his half-brothers wanted him to. He takes the scene with great fanfare, but now it's on the father's timing, not on his half-brother's timing. Jesus stands up in the assembly and says, It's me. Ta-da! I'm here. Everything you've been doing is about me. This whole ritual that you've been doing for the last seven days, it's all about me. All of it. The water ritual, the festivities, the whole feast is about me. Jesus draws all the attention to himself. His posture and his voice stress the authority and the urgency of his message. The rabbis were probably seated because the rabbis would typically teach from a seated position. Jesus, it says, stood up and cried out. All eyes are on him. And he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is a messianic offer. It's a messianic offer of the forever satisfying waters of eternal life. Not the physical waters that Moses provided through the rock. And not the physical waters that King Hezekiah provided through his tunnel. But the eternal waters of everlasting life. Do you remember Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Eternal satisfaction is found in a person. It's not found in the molecules H2O. That gives life temporarily. But the life that Jesus is offering is eternal life. And he offers it to this crowd. Jesus was claiming that the messianic ritual pointed to him as Messiah. And even more than that, he's claiming that the scriptures point to him as Yahweh in the flesh. That's why he says in verse 38 of John chapter 7, he who believes in me... As the scriptures said, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What scriptures? What scriptures? It doesn't say that. There's not a specific scripture that says what Jesus quoted. But that should cause you no alarm. Because... Jesus is quoting a principle that is referred to in many passages of the Old Testament. He's referring a principle that touches many different passages of the Hebrew Bible. For example, Isaiah 44, verse 3, For I, Yahweh, is the referent there, will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 58, verse 11 and Yahweh will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jesus is referring to the general principle. There's not a specific verse that he was quoting. He's quoting the general principle that God offers the waters of eternal life that satisfy. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to do what Yahweh does to offer eternal fullness, to offer eternal satisfaction, to offer eternal shalom, peace. Right at Christmas time we talk about peace, peace on earth. 
Peace is only found in Jesus, in Yahweh in the flesh. If you are not identified with him by faith, then you are not in a state of peace. You are in a state of judgment under God's fierce wrath. This is the great contrast. This is the offer that Jesus is making to the audience and that he makes to us. It is an offer of peace, of shalom, of wholeness, of completeness versus judgment. And all of this offer of eternal life is without cost. It's free. We find something very similar at the end of the book. And I don't mean at the end of the book of John. I mean at the end of the book. Revelation 22, verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. This is a theme, a principle that Jesus cites from the Hebrew Scriptures, and then Jesus repeats there before the Pharisees in John chapter 7, and then Jesus repeats at the end of the book of the Bible. Because it's a theme that is very important. It is a theme of the richness, of the fullness, of the satisfaction of eternal life. As you've heard me say many times before, eternal life is not about quantity of life. Everybody's going to live forever. Believers and unbelievers. Those who are welcome in the abode of God forever. Those who are unwelcome and unwanted in the abode of God. Unbelievers. Everybody's going to live forever. The question is, where? And with whom are we going to live forever? Eternal life is about quality of life. Wholeness completeness, fullness, satisfaction. This is what Jesus is offering and he is claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh. He's claiming that this messianic water ritual that you have been doing, it's about me. It's all about me. Everything always makes its way back to God. It's just a question of when. It always makes its way back to God. Then in verse 39, the apostle explains Jesus' teaching. Look at verse 39 of John chapter 7. But he spoke of the Spirit. He's, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. After Jesus' glorification, the Spirit would be given to all believers. In other words, after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The Spirit first came on church-age believers to indwell them, to empower them in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Remember Acts 1, chapter right before it, Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Acts 1.8. The first time the Holy Spirit came upon human beings permanently was in Acts chapter 2 on those believers. Today, the Holy Spirit comes upon every believer in the moment of faith, permanently. So when someone, the unbeliever, trusts in Christ, in that instant, the Holy Spirit comes upon that person and permanently indwells them. Now, I must say there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion about the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Often there are two extremes. One extreme is 
the filling of the Holy Spirit is about a feeling. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is about a feeling. The way you get the Spirit is you get all juiced up, right? You, you, you manufacture emotions. I know I've got the Spirit because i got the feeling. It's that kind of idea. And the way you know that I have the Spirit is because I'm all juiced up. I've, I've manufactured this great powerful emotion that you can see because we're living by sight, not by faith when we do that. And I want you to know that I have the Spirit, so I'm all emotional. And if I'm not juiced up, then I must not have the Spirit. Because we think the Spirit is a feeling. That's one extreme. But of course, that's not what the Scripture teaches. We know that we're indwelt by the Spirit as an act of faith. We believe it as an act of faith. Then you have extreme number two. Extreme number two is... Christians that know that the filling of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, is not a feeling. It's a reality that we have because it's been promised to us and we believe it by faith, but it's not something that we feel. And so then you have another extreme that says, well, it's kind of boring then. It's kind of ho-hum. And that other extreme just kind of minimizes the doctrine of the filling of of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so that other extreme just kind of blows it off. Neither extreme is appropriate. Neither extreme is right. We should never be bored with the filling of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is essential to your salvation and to your spiritual life. He's the member of the Trinity who eternally secures your salvation. He makes you whole. He is the one who satisfies your thirst for eternity. Because remember, the Scripture says that God has put eternity in our hearts. We long for something more than this realm. And if you are trusted in Christ for the, for, the, for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, then you are indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit feeds that eternal thirst with the waters of eternal life. The Holy Spirit energizes energizes and enables your spiritual life so that you may do the things of God. So that you may do the works of God. So that you may do the things that God values as opposed to the things that you value or that I value, which are often dead works, wood, hay, and stubble, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 3. But it's the Spirit. When you're, when you're walking in the Spirit... Then you're doing the things of God, the things that have eternal consequence. Jesus will teach more about the Spirit in the upper room when we get there later in John chapter 16, the night before He is to be crucified. But real quickly, John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere you see God the Father being the one who sends the Holy Spirit. Which is it? Is it God the Father or is it Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit? Yes, is the answer to that question. It's both. The church split over that issue. You understand the church in the West split? That's why there's the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox. And the, call it the, the Catholic Church. They split over that issue. Who is it who sends the Spirit? Is it Jesus or is it the Father? And really they were splitting over authority because 
because the, the, the Pope wanted to change a doctrinal position, and he just took it. And the Eastern Church said, no, you don't have the authority to, to take it. And it was on this point of who sends the Spirit. Some passages say Jesus sends the Spirit, like John chapter 16, verse 7. Other passages say the Father sends the Spirit. Well, guess what? It's the Trinity. And there's such unity among the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that when one acts, it's perfectly legitimate to say all three act because God is triune. As we saw last Wednesday night, if you're, if you're following the first Samuel study, this will be a review for you. But in Old Testament times, the Spirit's indwelling was temporary only for a few and only for particular tasks so Bezalel, who was the craftsman who built the Ark of the Covenant, who built the tabernacle, God empowered him. God, the Holy Spirit, empowered him and indwelt him to empower him, to enable him with this spectacular skill to build the tabernacle, to build the Ark of the Covenant. Joshua was indwelt by the Spirit to lead the people into the land of promise. Some of the judges were indwelt by the Spirit Samson, Gideon, to do two great acts for God. King Saul was indwelt by the Spirit to lead Israel. King David was indwelt by the Spirit to lead Israel. Very few, very few Old Testament believers were indwelt by the, by the Spirit. And they were indwelt for particular tasks. And you could lose the Spirit by sinning. That's Old Testament saints. But when it comes to believers in the church age, we are permanently, every single believer is permanently indwelt by the Spirit. Do you understand the significance of that? God lives in you. Please don't be bored by that. God resides in you permanently, forever. We must make a distinction between the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. Indwelling is permanent. Fellowship, the filling of the Spirit, temporary. Indwelling is part of your being sealed. Being sealed for the day of redemption. That's what Paul says. Anybody ever seen the movie Toy Story? I know y'all have seen the movie Story. You have to. Somebody's seen the movie Toy Story, right? And Toy Story, what happens? Little Andy picks up his, or, or uh, he picks up the boot, right? And it says Andy on the bottom of the boot. Right? Because the toy belongs to Andy. He belongs to Andy. Woody belongs to Andy. You belong to Jesus. He owns you. You're his. He's bought you with his blood. And the Spirit seals you, puts on the bottom of your foot, Jesus. So when you enter into heaven, assuming that you've trusted in Christ, the Father says, you're one of His. Jesus. You're with Him. This is the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. We're identified. The Spirit seals us. Writes Jesus on the bottom of our foot. Seals us with our identity with Christ. So when the Father sees us, He doesn't see the sinners that we are. We're sinners. I wish it weren't true, but if we're honest, we admit it. We're sinners. He doesn't see us as sinners. He sees us as righteous and holy, being identified 
with his son. And it's the Spirit who does that identification. The Spirit seals us. We are permanently indwelt by the Spirit. But then there's the filling of the Spirit. And sometimes we sin. And so in the filling of the Spirit, when we sin, we're out of the filling of the Spirit. We're out of fellowship with the Lord. And that's where confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, is very important. And that's where repentance from sin, running from the sin, because you confess the sin, but you love that sin. That's one of your favorite sins. Mm, mm, I love that sin. And so, uh, you know what, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that sin, and then I'm just going to confess it, and we'll worry about it later. I'm going to do it, then I'm going to confess it later. That's not how it works. Because that attitude in and of itself is a sin, because you're approaching God with this entitlement, this arrogant attitude. I'm going to do my sin because I really want to do it, and then I'll confess it later. No. So you must confess your sin. That restores you to fellowship, and then run from it. I'm not saying that we're going to be sinless, but we should be sinning less. All of this is respect to, with respect to pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And we're just getting a little glimpse of it here in our passage in John chapter 7. This is what Jesus is talking about because it is through the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, that we are satisfied. That our longing for eternity is satisfied. Our longing for the waters of eternal life are satisfied. And actually, not just that, but it flows out through us to others. Because when people see you, they should say, there's something different about you. There's something special about you. I hope you're not like everybody else in the world and you're engaged in all the other things that, 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 that the world is engaged in. There was a time in my life where you couldn't distinguish me from an unbeliever. I was a believer. But I thought and I acted and I spoke like I was not a child of God. Don't do that. And in fact, when someone looked at me, they're Christian. What are you talking about, Christian? Which is a great insult. It's a great insult when someone is surprised if you tell them you're a Christian. No. No. We should be in awe and wonder of the Word of God. So we should submit to it. And we should praise our God because He is a God of great mercy of great love, of great compassion. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ and you're here without hope, without Christ, and without eternal life. We want you to know that you are the enemy of God. We want you to know that you are under His fierce wrath and you are on the death train, speeding quickly into the lake of fire because... All of us, before we come to Christ, are the enemies of God. It's who we are. It's what the Scripture says. Clear, unequivocal. It doesn't waffle. I'm here to tell you the truth, the cold, hard truth, and that cold, hard truth is that God loves you, despite you being His enemy. He loves you with a love that will not let you go. He loves you just as you are, but He loves you enough not to leave you as you are. And so he offers you the waters of eternal life. And he says, come. 
come. Come. Come to me. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. If you've never trusted in Christ for the receiving of eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins, today's the day. All you have to do is trust in him. It's an act of faith. You get zero credit. He gets all the credit, all the glory, all the praise, which is the way he intended it, which is the way it will be for eternity. He will get all the glory. The way you know if you have eternal life and if you are going to heaven as opposed to hell is if you have trusted in Christ, period. If you have not trusted in Christ, then you can be uncertain and question. You should question and be uncertain because you're unsaved. If you have trusted in Christ, then you should be certain and secure because you are saved and your destiny is certain in the place where you are welcome and you are wanted, which is the eternal abode of Jesus Christ. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit about that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you and give you all the praise and the glory. We worship you. We honor you. And we thank you that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that you sent the spirit to indwell us. We praise you for these things. Help us not be bored by them. Help us not Take them in a fashion that is disrespectful to what you have done for us. Help us honor you and obey you and praise you for the awesome God that you are. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ himself. Amen.